and it's like me, Patty, Dave, and a handful of other like friends of hers. I'm like, we're just going like, wow, like there's so much left to do. And we've never run anything like this before. And I turned to Patty and I was like, this is going to be an absolute shit show. Like, we're never going to be able to work in this town again. Like, the, this huge media spotlight is going to come on us, and the whole thing is going to fall apart. This is the Digital Irish Podcast, a show about Irish innovation with entrepreneurs, corporate innovators, and global leaders. And this show is brought to you by the Digital Irish Network, which is a not-for-profit organization with the mission to promote both Irish innovation and Irish innovators globally. I'm Patrick McAndrew, and on the show today, Dara Hickey tells us about how three tenacious 20-year-olds in Dublin grew a small gathering of entrepreneurs into the largest tech conference in Europe. So back in 2011, things were pretty bleak in the Irish economy. Fianna Gael and Labour had just been elected as the new coalition government, and the country was still deeply suffering from the 2008 recession. We had unemployment rates at an all-time high of 15%, and you might recall that there were even some debates about having a second bailout. Most of the college graduates were emigrating to find work abroad, and the constant conversation in the media was about austerity, with more and more government cutbacks and an increase in taxes. And I say all this because memories can fade quickly. And for today's conversation, it's worth remembering the negativity around the Irish economy in 2011. Because during that time of doom and gloom, there were three 20-year-olds who were launching a business from the living room of one of their parents' homes. They were plotting to bring the world's media and some of the most in-demand personalities from Silicon Valley to Dublin for a tech conference called Web Summit. Dara Hickey, who was one of the co-founders of Web Summit, pulled off some insane PR stunts to bring global media attention and well-known speakers to Dublin. But Dara has been a master of catching the attention of celebrities and successful entrepreneurs since his days as the president of the Phil Society at Trinity College. And he's also had an eye for business for as long as he can remember. And for us to find out where all of this began, we need to go back to his hometown of Ballincollig, which is just outside of Cork City. I was always this like super curious kid um, who for some reason wanted to run a business. Uh, even as a, even as a, did you have like a bit of enterprise in you when you were I a little had kid? A, um, I, <laughs> I had an ambition to own a video shop because um, that would be super cool. Um, you would get to watch all of the videos like first. Um, and my dad was reviewing films and stuff. Um, so he used to come back with a bunch of films. So we had more videos than most people in the neighborhood. Um, so I would um, take all the videos out of the case and um, put them outside of my window. Um, and I would rent them to my friends for like 20p a video. Um, <laughs> and I did this, I would say, for like three or four years. How old like, were you during, when you started this? I'd say it was like seven, six. Was anybody looking for it or you just thought? No, I was like... You know, most kids in the neighborhood can't go to the video shop unless their parents bring them. But, you know, they could, could come to you the, directly. They could come to me directly. I could be the video store. And um, did your parents, were they enterprising? Did you, were you kind of immersed in that? Or was that just something that came out of it yourself? My dad was a journalist. Um, so I was always interested in, in media, which kind of figures kind of later in my life. Um, so I always had an interest in, in that kind of area. But they weren't enterprising per se. I think they were fascinated how <laughs> their little kid came up with all these schemes. I mean, another thing I did is I bought these little cans of um, virgin cola in Duns that came in those small, those really small cans. Yeah. Um, and I would sell um, virgin cola to my friends um, for a profit. Why? Um, <laughs> anything to make a bit of cash um, as a cash strapped six-year-old, you know. <laughs> I had like visions of buying the Lego pirate ship, um, uh, which I haven't succeeded in, in purchasing just yet. Um, You'll get there now. I will. <laughs> but I would do anything. I kind of understood the value of money. When you go to the store, um, my mother would say, well, that's very expensive. And I'd say, how much does that cost? And she said, well, that's, you know, five pounds. And I'd say, okay, well, how much do I have? She goes, well, you, you don't have anything. <laughs> but like my grand grandfather would give me like, 
50p or something. And then you just started to understand the value of money. And would you be trying to reverse engineer to think, how do I get enough money to accumulate to buy that? Yeah, yeah, all the time. Um, So I would ask people, like, brazenly, straight out for money. (laughs) For nothing. (laughs) Sometimes it was very effective. Um, (laughs) And now that your parents were media, were you a big reader when you were growing up? Um, I think back then I read the newspaper, like from a really young age and read like multiple newspapers and he was very aware of what was going on in the news um was that a common discussion in your house yeah all the time all the time so we would discuss like the gulf war um in the early 90s and we discussed like the stock markets my dad would explain to me what just happened that the dow was down 500 points or something like that and he would just kind of slowly impart what was going on in the world um we discussed you know, politics and stuff, I would take a view on the president, the president elections of uh, 1990 when I was four. Um, I was a big fan of Austin Curry because I also liked curries and that was a good name. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, we just took we took an interest in, in, in the world of media. And was that thanks to your parents' exposure that they kind of introduced you to it? Yeah, yeah. My dad just just kept talking. It was just the you know, if you wanted to be involved in conversation with grown-ups, you needed to um, have a view on... thing Because there's people that I meet and sometimes you see people who were allowed to be grown-ups when they were children. They were brought to the parents' table and they had to be able to converse amongst the parents with whatever topic was going on. Whereas other families, you know, there would be the kids' table and they'd be set over there. Were you guys always brought over to, yeah, to mingle no... with the adults? I think I was extremely precocious, so I was not very satisfied being at the kids' table. Um, I think my um, parents were uh, very willing to entertain entertain me and my sister. Um, my dad worked nights, so my mother would like, you know, have no one to talk to except her her little son. Um, so she would talk to me about whatever was going on in the world and treat me like an adult. Um, and I used to always be frustrated when my mother's friends would come over and she said, she might say like, oh, we'll, we'll leave the, the adults to talk now. And I'd be like, no, I have things to say <laughs> to be part of this conversation. But I think, you know, going forward in life, it does kind of, uh, it's a great equalizer because, uh, when we were reaching out to say CEOs at WebSumas, at no point did I, was I in fear of these people because of who they were, maybe a little older, wiser, more successful. Um, you know, I had things to say. Um, so there so was- So have you are, you, are you a unique person where you've avoided the fear of imposter syndrome? That is also a very interesting <laughs> conversation. It's something that like, I guess a lot of millennials like struggle with imposter syndrome. And I think the more and more I go on with life, um, the less I, uh, struggle with imposter syndrome. You know, I know that uh, I don't know everything, sure. But, you know, I, I know, I feel like I have a good idea of, like, where where I sit, and I'm very confident in my own abilities. Um, so, like anybody else, there are times when, you know, I'm flying by the edge of my pants and I'm fully aware of it um, and afraid that it's all going to fall apart. But I definitely don't suffer in the way that I know friends of mine do who are, you know, who's still quite successful. When you kind of start um, running a business at a very young age, like you can't have imposter syndrome or you just like you won't succeed. You won't go anywhere. Yeah. So you have to think, okay, well, this is a challenge. It's going to be hard. I don't know what I'm doing, but, you know, we can probably get there um, and we can learn how to do this thing. And I want to go back to um, just to your 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 early enterprises. So when you were was it was it twelve or thirteen when you kind of got your first job where somebody else was paying you to do work as, yeah. as a journalist yeah. as a writer? <laughs> yeah, I wrote a critique of um, uh, this kids website on Ireland Online, and I was like, "Look, I think your content's kind of out of date. Um, I think you could be doing these things better. Um, have you ever thought about this, this, and this?" And they were like. Wow, okay. Um, thank you. Um, for what your, was Ireland Online? Ireland Online was one of the first um, internet service providers back in the day. So to get on the internet, you had to have an ISP. Um, and you had to pay a certain amount of month for a membership. 
um, and uh, you would dial up and get those like beautiful dial tones over that kind of stuff. So yeah, I, I gave them this criticism and then they asked me if I wanted to be a game reviewer. And then the people who set up Ireland Online left to set up this new portal website, which was modeled on an American website called about.com. Um, and uh, they said, well, would you like to do more work for us? And we will give you a hundred pounds a month. And I was like, this is crazy. A hundred pounds a month to have a job, 13, and I can do it on the internet. Um, so I, I like to think that like we were some of Ireland's like first paid bloggers. There was like 10 people or something. Um, Quentin Fottrell, who's now a, a journalist in New York with Dow Jones, was another one of them. Um, and I can't think of who the others were, but there was like 10, 10 random people, but I was the youngest. And I got to do like fun things like get press passes to like witness and like hang around. You guys were like the Disney club of, uh, of the writers. The Disney club of, <laughs> of like uh, of online journalism. Um, you were the Ryan Gosling of Ireland. I, I, yeah, no, no, definitely not. No, but it was fun. It was fun. And I think the internet opened up all of these possibilities. Like you could just email people. But you, you were somebody who recognized that early on. Uh, yeah, I was like, that's mad. Like, I can send an email and then people would reply. And also, like, there weren't that many people on the internet. So if you got an email, you were like, oh, I got an email this week. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> I just better reply to this person. So people reply to you. It's mad, yeah. And so you were, so you went through school. What, what kind of a, what kind of student were you in school? Were you, did that precociousness come out in the classroom? I was a very efficient student. Um, what does that mean? That's something I've never heard somebody describe themselves so as. So, like, I would go and pick subjects that I, like, like, I just saw it as a game. Like, you've got to get this many points to do this course and whatever. So I wasn't, I was studying things that I thought were easy or that I was interested in. And, like, I optimized for that. And I kind of left school in, like, February. I was like, we're just repeating the same things. This is nonsense. So I'm just going to stay home and do a few hours of study a day. And that'll be it. Um, and I nearly... Were you happy to have made the move to Trinity? Um, yeah, it was pretty, um, it's kind of daunting going from Cork um, and even from UCC where I'd know quite a number of people um, to, to go to, to Dublin where all these people kept talking about like what school they went to. And, you know, I went to a regular community school in Cork, <laughs> which people couldn't kind of place on the kind of strata of social society. <laughs> I was just a bogger or I don't know, something like that. But it was a great, um, a really great university. And there was like lots of things going on um, at university. Like there was just all sorts of mad random clubs. Did you throw yourself right into it once you got I in I did. There? And one of the first people that I met was um, this guy called Paddy Cosgrave, who was like a man about about campus. Um, this kind of very ambitious, um, precocious uh, guy who was head of a thing called the Philosophical Society. Um, and in our first week of, of college, um, Paddy has managed to bring uh, Ron Jeremy, the porn star, um, wow. to Trinity. Um, what a great guest. Affectionately known as the Hedgehog. <laughs> <laughs> but in the subsequent kind of um, six, nine months, he brought all sorts of other um, you know, interesting people from Newt Gingrich um, to um, Archbishop Desmond Tutu and Bob Geldof. And they came because the society had a history and it had a history of over 300 years. Um, and Paddy wrote this kind of magnificent letter that kind of, I guess, played on all of these people's desire to, you know, impart wisdom in this next generation and build their own legacy. Um, and he, he wrote this lovely letter and also um, uh, made up this new award called the Honorary Patronage, which still stands um, today, and managed to kind of uh, build a process um, uh, to get all of these great people. Um, and a lot of people would just come into these college societies and just drink or you know, just do nothing. Like they didn't really do very much, but he was really, really ambitious about it um, and put a huge amount of work and, and effort into it. He managed to get at his, um, at his inauguration, he managed to get like 
um, I think the past kind of four or five previous prime ministers and like a whole lot of the Irish business community. At his inauguration to become the president At of the Phil Society. Yes, yes. Which tells you a little bit about his level of ambition. Um, but then, um, I guess in my year... How old would he have been at this time? How old were you when you went? I would have been 18, um, and he was 22, 23. He took a year out to do this in college. Just to focus on the Phil Just Society. Just to focus on this. So then I followed in his footsteps two years later um, and became the president um, of the society. Took a year out also... And I got was, people like... Was that a common thing that if you became the president that this no, was No, it was something time? Paddy started, that he was in just completely committed to it. And also, I guess he wanted to get the most out of the, the experience. You didn't get paid for it, right? No, didn't get paid for it. No. Um, and was that... So you had you'd come to Trinity. Paddy, was was he one of the first people that you had met? Yeah, he was one of the first people that, that, that I met in Trinity. So... And just because he was a man about campus, where you like, I'm gonna be, I want to be friends with this guy, <laughs> something like that. I was very impressed, um, very impressed um, by him, and he um, took me under his wing and imparted a lot of kind of advice and and wisdom. And I think he saw uh, kind of a level of ambition in me um, as well. Did you feel like you were like kindred spirits going out and um, doing that? Definitely, hustle? definitely, yeah. um, we definitely were. Um, and then two years later, I became president, and I had people like. Um, David Hasloff, Oliver Stone, Al Pacino, um, Justice Ginsburg, um, all sorts of other wacky and weird people. Okay, um, so let's talk through that. So you you saw you saw Paddy bringing in all these all these big shots, right? Yeah. And what was the process? So you said that he wrote a story. He wrote this incredible story. He created an award. So was that just the idea that it wasn't enough for them to come and speak? There had to be something that they would receive in return for this. Yeah. And that you were you, you were getting something. Yeah. So, you know, he created an award, which is a little certificate. I made that into a nice gold medal because that's kind of cooler. It looks better. Um, and, um, you know, he... And would you guys pay for their flights? Would you pay for everything? For Very rarely over? would we pay for anybody's flights or anything like that. With their accommodation? Well, we're just a student society. So they would they would come and they would they would put put up their own money to come and speak. To du- in Dublin? Yeah, a lot of them did. Sometimes we did pay for people's flights, um, but very, very rarely. Um, I think the budget when I went in for the College Society, which, you know, Paddy had uh, increased dramatically, was about 40,000. And then I increased it to like 70,000. Um, this was in the heyday of the Celtic Tiger. So we were like knocking on everybody's door with our begging bowl. Um, and it worked very well. And we found a way of monetizing these guests when they came in. So we would say to the Late Late Show or, you know, um, the other people in RT, hey, um, we have these guests coming in. Do you want them? And they'd say, oh, we'd love to have David Hasloff on. And I'd say, you can have David Hasloff if you pay for his flights, accommodation, car, et cetera, et cetera. So there'd be like no cost to us. And then we'd say to... So some, here you were as students and you were the ones bringing these big stars and we to Ireland that so that were, the national broadcaster could get them on their Yeah, and we shows. realized that they were a currency. So then we would find other ways of monetizing them. Um, and we would go and do that. So for somebody like John Podesta, who I had, who was at the time... It was Clinton's last chief of staff, and of course he had run Hillary's campaign um, last time around. Um, he he came, and then we had like between News Talk, the Institute of European Affairs, some other part in Trinity, probably somebody else. Like they all paid us to like have him come and speak, and he was delighted to have this full itinerary of things to do while he was there. I mean... And would you be hanging out with him while he's going and doing all that yeah, stuff? Or would we'd, you... we'd bring him to the stag's head um, in Dublin <laughs> for a pint. Um, we'd, like, bring all these people typically for lunch. Um, and you'd learn an awful lot from these these people. Um, and then, like, subsequently, you know, you might touch base later. So I went to D.C. and saw Podesta again. Um, and it kind of helps you build this kind of... this incredible network of interesting people yeah and how you this is at the age of like 20 right that you're getting that kind of exposure 20 21 yeah and let's talk about al pacino because al pacino is is probably an extraordinary one amongst all of those in in being a worldwide known star how did you get him um we sent him a letter the same letter we sent everybody else so is that what you guys would do you would just post letters to huge amounts of people 
So we sent the letter to Pat Kingsley, who is um, a really famous like Hollywood publicist. She was the woman who managed to, you know, ensure that uh, <laughs> a lid was kept on Tom Cruise, um, on the craziness behind Tom Cruise. And she managed a lot of like the big personalities in Hollywood at the time. And little did we know, Pacino had a, a bit of a pet project. And um, he was doing a um, film um, about uh, uh, an Oscar Wilde play called Salome. Um, so he had an interest in Wilde. Um, so he wanted to come to the place where Oscar Wilde studied. Um, and Oscar Wilde was a member of the University Philosophical Society. So that kind of played into his kind of hands and interests. So I was at a party um, and like a precocious college kid that I was, I had my Blackberry and suddenly this email arrives in um, from Pat Kingsley and I know who that person is. And I open the email and it's like, do you have time to talk? Al's really interested. And I was like, wow, this is insane. Um, so yeah, I talked to him and not to him, but I talked to Pat Kingsley and then I talked to um, this other guy, Barry Navidi, who was uh, the producer on, on, on the film um, and we set up a whole lot of stuff and he came to Ireland and we met him off um, the plane um, which was a funny experience he was flying private and we went to this like other part of Dublin airport where the private planes land um, and we're waiting for him and I had a car ready for him um, I got an advice about like what to do when you bring a celebrity into the country <laughs> from this film publicist in Ireland. She was like, you can't just use any driver. Like, you can't get a taxi. Like, you can't put Al Pacino in a taxi. Like, that's not a thing. I was like, okay. So she's like, you need to get a driver. So, and it can only be this type of driver, these these people, because they know how to deal with celebrities and blah, blah, blah. Like, you can't be the average kind of wedding or funeral kind of drive. <laughs> anyway, we were we were there um, and I was standing with the guardy at the entrance to the to the car and um the guardy or passport control like come to you um which is amazing. So he stepped off the plane and he was just really nice and really funny. Um and uh the guardy uh, uh stamped his passport and then they got his autograph um which is hilarious. <laughs> um and uh, immediately in the car, he was like cracking jokes and just like asking me about me and, you know, what I was up to and all of that kind of stuff. And then we're passing by Starbucks. He's like, you guys have Starbucks here? And I was like, yeah, there's one here on College Green. <laughs> and he's like, can we stop? He's like, what does everybody want? And I was like, you can't go to Starbucks. You can't just walk in Starbucks <laughs> on College Green. But he was about to do it. But he was a lot of fun. And I got to like hang out with him for three days. Um, so that was like a great crack. And it was interesting. You know, later in the evening, he wanted to go out. He wanted to go like, gambling um like go to the casino just for the crack um and he you know there was no um there's no car to to take him there so then they were thinking oh i can't go walk on the street and then people will harass me and stuff like that because people were hanging outside his hotel while he was there for the whole trip which is crazy and he wanted to go to a bookshop at another time couldn't do that because again it'd just be loads of people and it just real you kind of realize like that's you know not particularly great life because you're kind of you're 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 entrapped in your own in your own settings right yeah you can you can't go out and amongst the public but on a similar note you spent a year now you have two previous years getting being involved in the film society and getting access to bringing these people to ireland then you spend a year as the president and your job is essentially scouting finding um incredible speakers and personalities to come and speak at the society and you've got money to do it you've got the capacity the power what do you do after that well, after that, um, Patty and I regrouped for this thing called Rock the Vote, um, where we started a campaign to encourage more people to vote in the 2007 general election. Um, and the idea was there's a lot of apathy. Um, the country was doing um, incredibly well. Um, and there's just like a great deal of apathy in the economy. And how do we um, encourage people to vote? And one of the things that we realized is um, people didn't know how to register to vote, it wasn't that easy. So we wanted to tell them exactly how. And we wanted to tell them that their vote mattered. 
we wanted to tell them things about like postal votes and the supplementary register and all of those kinds of things. So we started this kind of viral YouTube campaign around that time and we got all sorts of weird celebrities to participate from like Daryl Brian to like Colin Farrell and like, I don't know, George Hook and Pat Kenny and like Ryan Tuberty and Grania Shoiga and all sorts of other weird people. That campaign for Rock the Vote ran until the general election of May of 2007. So while he had the summer off from college, Dara went to RTE to work as a researcher on a chat show called Saturday Night with Miriam. That exposure then to like real journalism in that sense, did that endear you to want to get back into journalism from your early days at 13 of the blogosphere? (laughs) No, it did. It really did. I mean, there's this huge buzz of live television. You're putting like something together and, you know, 500,000 people are going to go watch it on TV. Like it's weird. Like you're deciding the structure of the interview. Like I've got questions. You know, I'd like to ask you some things. (laughs) And you did. That's what you went back into. You went back into journalism. So you started writing. Yeah, I finished my... Well, what did I do? Okay, so I was going into third or fourth year at that time. um, And then I met this journalist um, at a bar once. um, And he wrote for the Daily Mail. Um, So he asked me if I'd contribute to it. So again, I was in college and... You know, the editor would say, hey, you should go to this opening of an envelope and tell me what's what and, you know, what's going on. Because there's like three things on tonight and I can't go to them all. And then the people who would tell me stories there, um, as the economy was collapsing around kind of 2008, 2009, they kind of continued to tell me other stories. Um, And then I started writing stories about like the collapse of banking and about like um, how you know, government-backed institutions were taking their money out of Irish banks at a time when the government was saying there's nothing going on here, everything's fine. And were you actively looking to get the the scoop on these stories or people were coming to you and telling you what was actually happening in the undercurrent of Irish society? I was a freelance journalist and I think a freelance journalist is a bit like being an entrepreneur. Like you have to, you know, find this information. So you have to be very, very curious and so how long were you working as a journalist then after college until uh, until um, Webster I think it's been about a year. Um, and then um, Patty um, messaged me and said, hey, I'm starting this tech conference. I've got these great people. Will you come work with me on it? And I was like, no, I want to do this thing. I'm really enjoying it. I'm getting these scoops. You know, I just want to keep going with this. You know, maybe... In a few years time, if I do really well, I could be a political correspondent. Maybe I, you know, work for the Indo and, you know, I I had a whole career like mapped out in front of me and it sounded great. Um, But he kept kind of pursuing me. And then he said, I've got the founders of YouTube, Skype and and Twitter to come speak. And uh, they were very cool companies at the time. Um, I, I just want your help on media and stuff. So I said, okay. So he had the founders of YouTube, Twitter, and Skype. And this was when? This was in 2009. 2009. And how big was this conference? How did he get people like that? It was in 2009 or 2010. Um, He reached out to them. Again, like we did in in Trinity. Just reaching out to these people. Just to come to Dublin and hang out? To to come speak at a tech conference. How, How did that come about? Where did he get the idea that Dublin needed to have a tech conference? Or that these founders wanted it he was super curious super curious as to um you know meeting these people and realized if you bring them together for a tech conference then you get to meet with them and hang out so he was thinking about his own kind of future career maybe you know start starting a, a tech startup he had um kind of iterated on uh rock the vote and started this other company called my candidate giving people like obama like tools to um you know, start email campaigns and get donations and all. Um, and then ultimately that company um, didn't quite kind of scale the way that he would have liked. And then he was in this interim period and he decided to uh, start this event and call it Web Summit. So he came along to me and uh, he said, look, I want some help with Irish press. Um, so I said, okay. Um, so in two or three days, I made a bunch of calls and I was like, okay, so you got... Orti, the Irish Times, the Indo, you know, blah, blah, blah. They're all going to cover it. It's we're, we're good now, so I can go. And he's like, no, why don't we try international press? I mean, this is cool, right? 
and I was like, Phew, inter- I don't know any international press. I don't know anyone. Um, and I thought about it and I was like, okay, well, we need to come up with this narrative. And it was around the time that the, you know, IMF had come into Ireland and say the whole country is broke. And I was like, well, what about a new narrative about all these tech people gathering, you know, in Ireland? Um, and, you know, that maybe tech is going to be the savior of the Irish economy. So I called Bloomberg um, and pitched them this story and they thought it was a great story. And they said, if you can get me um, 30 minutes with Jack Dorsey, we'll come. And I said, done. And they said, do you not have to ask anyone? I was like, no, no, it's fine. Um, and we didn't ask Jack Dorsey um, until very late in the day. The day of. It might have been the day of. Um, but luckily, we had a, got Dorsey to agree to do a public interview and to have somebody moderate the interview. So um, we told him that the journalist from Bloomberg was going to moderate the interview. Um, and, you know, he, that was fine. And then it all worked out well. And Bloomberg like ran this like incredible exclusive interview from the founder of Twitter. And um, they ran a whole load of content out of the event. And they started calling it Davos for Geeks. And loads of people wrote these really, really nice things. And I think the world um, became very, very curious. And this was your first event? Yeah, this is the first big Web Summit. And how many people were there? Um, at Web Summit, there were 600 people. Paddy had a, a kind of initiated this where he wanted to bring these tech entrepreneurs and people from Silicon Valley and the media to Dublin to get together. Was there nobody else doing this at that time? Or was this such a unique thing? There was no one doing this. There really, like, there really wasn't. I don't think there was anyone really doing this could people get tickets to yours or was it invite only? No, they could get tickets. We had two events, one called Web Summit, which you could buy a ticket for. I'd say you could probably have bought the first tickets for like 50 euros. Um, and then like the last few tickets were probably sold for like 250. Um, and then we ran this other kind of very exclusive event called Founders, which you'd be invited to. And I think the tickets to the first one of those was about a thousand um, and you'd be invited. Um, so the Founders event attracted the who's who of Silicon Valley. It was the hard to get an invite. But a week before um, the event happened, and all of these people are coming into town, like the who's who of Silicon Valley, all of these me- <laughs> all of this media. And it's like me, Patty, Dave, and a handful of other like friends of ours. Like, we're just going like, wow, like there's so much left to do. And we've never run anything like this before. And I turned to Patty and I was like, this is going to be an absolute shit show. Like, we're never going to be able to work in this town again. Like, this huge media spotlight is going to come on us and the whole thing is going to fall apart. And he was just like, well, I guess we better get to work, right? (laughs) So it was like, there was never any, like, room for... It's not going to happen. There was never any room for the imposter syndrome. It had to be like, well you know, we've got to fix it. So let's just go fix it. It's a very kind of pragmatic attitude. Like, yeah. It's just like, get it done. And you were you were apprehensive to get involved at the first one initially because you, you had your sights set on becoming a journalist, uh, you know, getting more of those deep scoops. And after bringing in the world's media to come and look at the Web Summit, did your, did your perspective on it all change then? Well, then I realized that like playing at an international level was a lot more fun than playing, than playing just in Ireland. And it was super interesting, you know, and Paddy, um, uh, you know, had this kind of great vision for what we could do. Um, and we thought, wow, let's just do this next year. Paddy was like, let's make it 1500 people. And I was like, there's no way there's 1500 people in Ireland interested in technology. Like, it's just not going to happen. Like, you're crazy. He proved us wrong. And we got the 1500 people, it was sold out. Then the next year, you know, we got 3000 people. So then when he said the following year, there was going to be 10,000 people, I was like, 10,000, sure. Like, why not? 10,000, let's do it. More, 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 bigger, bigger, bigger. And it got broader and broader and broader. Like, and we realized that there wasn't anything really like it in um, 
in Europe. We had been to other tech conferences, but they were really for the elites, the creme de la creme. And, and then we're like, well, you're in Dublin for you know two, three days. How do we ensure you have a really good time? So we created all these events in the evening and all of that kind of stuff. We just really worked really, really hard at building this entire kind of ecosystem around the event, like like almost like rebuilding the city and like ensuring that like the city knew and understood what was going on. So like Patty did simple things like um, go and have a conversation with the taxi drivers at Dublin airports and tell them, you know, who these people were, you know, what they were like, what this event was, you know, where the various different kind of venues were and where these people would likely be staying and blah, blah, blah. Um, so that when they got into the car and they said, oh, I want to go to the Webster, they were like, I got you. I know where it is. I know when it's on, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and they were well prepped and people would remark to us that like, the lovely thing that they, the thing that they loved about Dublin was the whole city was switched on from the whole like experience. So that was nice. And I think it really added to um, people's enjoyment of, of the event. And often, I guess, other events that we went to were run by media companies or they were run by these really old school conference companies who just, they didn't care. Were you guys making any money when it started? It, like it, it we never took any investment from anybody, so it had to make money. So how did you how did you fund something like this from the beginning? If you if you didn't take any investment, I mean, from the beginning, like it's from like a like a credit card and like a very small amount of you know personal capital, like nothing, nothing, nothing at all, and the hope that it would all go right. Was the timing of it in that sense good that it served you because it was the recession? There was it was maybe easier for people to do things at a cheaper price to take a chance if there was an opportunity that something was going to come. Prices were lower, I think, um, and there was, you know, opportunities to get really, really smart people to come work for us because there weren't very many opportunities for those people to go and do something else. And were, so did you leave your journalism career kind of full time then and then pour yourself into Web Summit after that first event? Or did it take a while? Did you stay doing what you had focused on with journalism? Um, I left like shortly after the first Web Summit, like stopped writing stuff. Um, I still write very occasionally, the odd column or something. But um, yeah, I left to, to go do Web Summit. And I looked after, I guess, all of the speakers um, you know, I'm part of the uh, founders event. Um, and then I also would have looked after kind of all of the press and the media. So, you know, built partnerships with the Wall Street Journal and did an event with them in Asia, um, you know, did deals with CNBC um, and all these other kind of interesting people. So we built the press up when I left um, about two years ago to about kind of 2000 journalists from 110 countries. Um, so from zero. Is it true that Nasdaq came and opened up the markets? Is it the only time they've ever left the US? I think it was certainly one of the first times at the time when they did it, um, which is really funny because um, it was my now business partner um, who was at Nasdaq at the time. And um, we kind of spitballed this idea of like, wouldn't it be cool to do this in Dublin? Um, and she said, look, I want, I want to come and see the space. You know, we've got to kind of think about this. This is obviously a big deal. We're opening the market. You know, there's all sorts of implications. We need to get this right. So I'm going to come over in sometime in the summer, well in advance of the Web Summit in November, and I'm going to see the space. And I said, well, the only problem with that is um, if you come over in the summer, this, this space will look a, it'll look a little different. She goes, what, what do you mean? I said, well, there's this thing called the horse show. And uh, it'll be on uh, in November. And she's like, well, what's the horse show? I said, well, the place that we use for the bell may be a stable and it may be covered in shite. Um, so you might get kind of the sense of what it'll look like. Um, and she's like, well, I have to see it. You know, I need to, I need to come. So I brought her to the stable, which would soon become, you know, the stage for the NASDAQ opening ceremony. <laughs> Luckily, she had to trust me that everything would be fine. Um, and she was literally like, holy shit, walking around in her um, like Manola Blahnik high heels or something <laughs> with a uh, horseshit trailing behind her. Um, but luckily, the whole thing went off without a hitch, which was a relief. 
and that was the same year that you guys got Elon Musk to come and attend. Yeah, to come and speak. How how did how did you guys pull him in? Um, we reached out to somebody that he like was a really good friend of his that like knew Web Summit, knew us. Um, then Elon said he'd come if he could meet the Taoiseach and Takeri. We were like, okay, um, that's probably possible. Yeah, yeah, you could meet the Taoiseach. We'll make that happen for you. Um, so we reached out to the, the Taoiseach and they were like, uh, uh, I don't know, who's this Elon Musk? And then we told them, and then we were like, look, we could do something fun. Like, what about like the Taoiseach in Elon's car, driving on stage, the first Tesla in Ireland, all this. And they were like, this is kind of interesting. And we were like, look, there's nothing really contentious about this. Like, we don't want to discuss anything major. Like, we want to create this kind of fun moment and stuff. So um, he came and did it and had a, a really, really great time. Um, so that was a fun story, as was bringing Elon Musk to Copperface Jacks, um, <laughs> which was my first time in Copperface Jacks. Um, How did you respond? I think it was also Halloween. So, like... Um, Everybody was dressed as a nurse um, and not just the nurses. Um, so that was just a, a bizarre and fun experience. But the other kind of fun part is like Coppers, of course, has no like VIP area unless you're like the Dublin football team. Um, but it has no other kind of VIP area. So they put us off in a corner and they were nice to us. But I had to go and get like 15 other tech founders to, to come in. Um, and I went to the doorman and told him and he goes, let's just have to queue like everybody else. I was like, I really like, we can't, I can't have that happen. Like they, they won't understand the kind of queuing system and certainly won't appreciate it. And I'm going to get it in the neck um, if they end up queuing. I was like, what about if you take this um, hundred euros? And he goes, your money's no good here, my friend. Your money's no good here. And I was like, fuck, fuck, what do I do? But he clearly saw that I was incredibly agitated by the situation and obliged me um, um, just before these these guys arrived. They, they got into cover face jacks. Those are the moments that probably made it more special for them. That's what that's what made the Web Summit and, and, and coming to Dublin and that kind of atmosphere. And having that then, you talked about like Elon Musk yeah. coming in in the car with Enda Kenny. Did the Irish government... Because when the Web Summit came around, one was really drawing people, was at a time when the Irish economy was struggling. And here you were bringing the who's who from Silicon Valley into Dublin. Did they start to lean on you guys? Did you start to develop any sort of, uh, was there any sort of a relationship, a connection? We developed what we thought was a very good relationship with them. Um, and they, at one point, you know, they were, we, we kind of made them aware, like, hey, there have been some problems, particularly around traffic, uh, around the RDS. Um, there were other problems around hotels and like price gouging, loads of other kind of things like that. And we're like, look, for this to do well, we want to look after our guests and ensure they have a good time. We'd like them ideally to you know, have free, free travel in the city because if they have free travel, then we're not going to have this clog of taxis and traffic you know, getting into the RDS and all of those kinds of things. Um, and they said, look, I think this sounds like a great idea. Why don't you put together a list of, you know, things that we could potentially do to make this a better experience? Um, and we gave them the list. And then as time went on, we realized they weren't really kind of answering any of our questions or queries or doing anything, just kind of paying lip service to, to us. And we were like, look, we need some answers here. And to try and encourage them, we said, look, we're, we're going to look at other cities if you guys aren't going to kind of come back. And I think they really thought that that was just kind of some sort of bravado and that, you know, ultimately the Web Summit would be nothing without Dublin. And they refused to take us seriously in any way or engage with us whatsoever. Basically, all parts of the Irish government, well, most parts, were just not willing to listen. And ultimately, we had to make the right decision for the event. And the right decision was um, to move it elsewhere to a city that really wanted to jump through all of the hoops to ensure that everybody would have an amazing time. Um, and we moved it to Portugal. Now, you announced that in 2014, that the following year, right? That you would be you would be moving. Yeah. And there was a huge sour taste amongst the Irish media then at that point for Web Summit leaving Ireland. There was a great deal of spin on the other side because I think the government were taken aback embarrassed and then they started spinning like just like these nonsense story 
these nonsense stories. So they released the list of things that we had, uh, you know, asked for. And they were things that they said, look, just give us a long list of all the things that we could possibly, you know, do for you. So we had given this long list, hoping that we get some of these, some of these things, not all of them. Um, and uh, they kind of spun it that way. Um, but the reality is that they, they dropped the ball. Um, and I guess Dublin kind of lost out a little bit. And to this day, the Web Summit is still taking place in Lisbon. So it continued to snowball. It, con- it continued to grow from 2009 all the way through and, and got bigger and bigger. And at, in 2017, what was the size? It was around 50,000, was it, that you, you guys had at the 50,000 attendees? And at that stage, it was clearly and evidently the largest tech conference in the world. It was the, definitely the largest tech conference in Europe. CES, probably in, the, in Las Vegas in January, is... Is a little okay, bit. so the largest in Europe. Um, and then you decided to leave. You decided to leave Web Summit. Yeah, I think, you know, when you are there at the jur- at the start of, of any um, company, um, it's an incredible formative experience. As a company grows, um, you know, you have to specialize um, in one thing. Um, for the sake of the company, everybody has to become a domain name expert. And I was like a more of a generalist than a specialist. So I liked the media stuff. I liked the editorial stuff. I liked some of the sponsorship stuff. And the idea of just doing one thing was not very appealing. Um, and I think after, was it like 10 years, something like eight, 10 years of, of Web Summit, um, yeah, I just wanted to, to do something different. Um, you know, wanted... Uh, to spend a lot more time in the U.S. Um, and do something completely different. Um, so together with a friend of mine who um, was at NASDAQ and then at BCG Digital Ventures, we set up this little company called 150 Bond. Um, and it played to kind of my strengths and interests in like media and technology. Um, so kind of offering strategic advice and communications to startups and to corporates. Um, so we set that up in 2017. Um, and then that has grown, I guess, to you know now around 12 people. And we work with all sorts of bizarre and interesting people. And that's the thing that endears me about 150 Bomb because the Web Summit is very, from its inception, you know, was very present in the media was very, uh, had a digital presence online. It was very clear and obvious as to what it did and it was it was getting coverage. Um, it seems that you've you've gone the other end and you've created um, a company that is uh, slightly more mysterious in terms of what you're doing with 150 Bond. I mean, it's deliberately opaque. Um, and, and we also work with lots of different clients. You know, it's really about them for me. It's not really about me. My desire isn't to build this into a 200-person company. It's to have this like small, nimble, like crack team of problem solvers. Um, and then the work that we do, you know, it's not stuff that we, you know, go out and talk about all the time. We do kind of the bread and butter, you know, that was probably relevant here is we will take an Irish startup maybe looking to go global and we will help them do that. So we will build their messaging, their strategy. We might even introduce them to kind of investors, US VCs, that sort of thing. We will help them probably find their first kind of three or four customers. So particularly if you're an enterprise company um, and you need those kind of marquee names. So we will introduce you to C-level executives at these companies. We will help you build partnerships, you know, and almost act as a BD team. we will introduce you to heads of corporate development who are the people who will likely um, acquire you. You know, people will come to us with their crazy problems of what they want to do. So sometimes they'll say, look, I need a new CTO or VP um, and I need them to be this kind of person. And we'll say, okay, we'll make that happen. Is, it sounds like it's kind of taking the learnings, like uh, even going back as far as the Phil Society, even going back to then of the things that you've learned that maybe a lot of people don't because you've had the opportunity to try and crack this not many different times and uh, see how it all comes together, where you've known the inside and, and what happens in the media, how you get their attention, what they really want, and then how you can take what you've done for 
from 500 to 50,000 people and bring them all together, but you've gone and you've distilled it down to how you can do it for the individuals. Sometimes I like to think we're like translators, like between like two people who like speak different languages. So like if you're like a tech company and you're like, I got this great product, I just, and you're talking like this and you're very excited and whatever. But if you're a corporate, you're like, oh, like all these tech companies, they just think they have the greatest thing. So we help them talk to each other. Um, and also, I think we know a lot about the tech sector. We know a lot about the venture capital community. We know a lot about media. And, you know, my business partner comes from BCG and NASDAQ. And she knows this, the corporate sector in the US. She knows a lot of the CEOs and C-level executives at these big firms. So when we say this company is somebody you should meet, people will take her advice. Do you miss the the intensity and the, the adrenaline rush of kind of working towards big events like the Web Summit? Because before this, all your life was days of mayhem when it was taking place, months of preparation, and then that build up of energy as it was about to all about to all unfold. So I still get those hits of like <laughs> events and stuff that we're, you know, working towards. Um, we do a lot of like dinners for people. So it's always exciting to see that like come together at the end. And do you have intentions of, of building this out? To, is this something that can be built out or is it always going to be kept at that kind of small? I think it's always going to be boutique where 12 people or so now, um, we will get bigger, maybe like 60 people over the next three years um, with offices in um, London, in San Francisco, LA, and maybe Berlin as well. Wow. When you when you were younger, did you ever think you would be this immersed? Uh, and when I say younger, I mean when you were coming, you know, when you were in like your third, fourth year of college, did you ever think that you would have any involvement in the world of tech? Um, no, I had no idea what I was going to do. When I was in third year of college, I was applying to uh, KPMG and PwC and all of these places because that's what one does. Um, and also it was the recession in Ireland. So you were just trying to grab onto any potential job. Um, so I think I've been very lucky along the way to have made many fortuitous decisions <laughs> to bring me to where I am now. Um, and I probably like couldn't be happier in terms of my you know, career and what I'm doing. Um, I'm very lucky to get up every morning and get very excited about work. Um, and, you know, my husband uh, likes to kind of laugh at me because I will take calls in the strangest places at the strangest times. And like, he's like, are you not like, annoyed that you're answering an email on a ski lift in the middle of a holiday on a Saturday afternoon. And I'm like, no, this is great. This is exciting. So, <laughs> so I think if you can be in that position about, you know, work, it's, it's a really good thing. And I know that I'm very lucky that not everybody is in that position about work. Yeah. Now you've created your own path. Um, it's an amazing story. And before we leave, I just have a couple of quick fire round questions that I'd like to ask you. I hadn't told you this was going to come. This is coming on the hop for you now, Dara. Um, what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Oh, uh, I'd like to be a journalist, but I was a journalist. So if I wasn't a journalist, I'd love to be a chef. Really? Yeah. Do you cook a lot at home? Um, uh, not a lot, not enough, but like I just love food yeah has new york city changed that for you or no i love food i love like the simple things like there's a place not too far from here where we are right now called the halal guys which is like a kebab cart which is like excellent like really really impressive <laughs> and there's also like a three michelin star restaurant down the road called 11 madison park both are epic in different ways uh what's your favorite word um, <laughs> my new favorite word is nonsense. Um, <laughs> just, you know, when somebody says something, you're like, nonsense. Like, that's just nonsense. What's your least favorite word? I like, no. No is a bad word. Um, my, when people say no, I'm always like, why? Um, <laughs> so I just, I don't like no. I think it's a very dismissive word. I don't think it's constructive. I don't think it's productive. I always want to know more. Um, it usually leads to kind of very long conversations. No is a bad word. And I just want to get the first thing that comes to mind when you hear these words. Davos. Um, work. <laughs> Venture capital. Um, 
Dragon's Den. Elon Musk. Great guy. And IPOs. Um, we work tough times. Tough times indeed. Yeah. Um, if you could go back to the young Dara Hickey uh, just before he had greeted Al Pacino on the runway of Dublin Airport and yeah, got to give him some advice or anything really uh, for the next number of years in his life and his career, what would you say to him? Um, just to enjoy it. Just continue to enjoy it. This is going to be great. Fun times ahead. Yeah. Cool. Thank you very much, Dara. Thank you. Cheers, man. That's Dara Hickey, who was previously with Web Summit and is now the managing partner of 150 Bond. And remember when Dara said that 150 Bond was intentionally opaque? Well, if you want to see what he means by that, then you should search 150bond.com online and just see how much information his website gives you. And I ask you to please stick around because we've got two more interviews with founders of Irish fintech startups, one which is based in Dublin and New York, and the other which is based in Kenya. So I'm based in Manhattan in New York. It's a city that is just full of people in finance that trade millions and billions of dollars every single day. But what I didn't know is that Ireland has a huge role to play in the investments that are being made from New York. Here's Alan Meany to tell us a little bit about how Ireland's involved in all these financial trades that are made on a daily basis. So if you think about the funds world, the hedge funds are the sexy part, the Wolf of Wall Street stuff that's done in New York and London. They make all the money. And then the likes of Dublin do a lot of the back office work. So when those funds go out and do their trades, someone has to track those and value the fund at the end of the day so investors can subscribe in and, and redeem out. And a lot of that happens in Ireland. So Ireland is one of the two global centers for fund administration back office along with Luxembourg. This business is known as fund administration and it has a huge impact on the Irish economy. So we've seen the fund industry grow to employ 15,000 people and net contribution to the exchequer is just under a billion euros. Alan is the CEO of Fundrex and they were founded in 2013 by three Irish guys. The original co-founding team is myself, Des and Podrick. And myself and Des worked together for six years. Podrick's uh, connection to Des goes a bit deeper. He is married to Des's sister. And Podrick is the CTO and the technical brains behind the operation. Um, and we're, we're lucky to have him. But yeah, I'm the only one that doesn't have to go to the Christmas dinner. So I'm happy out. So Alan and Des had worked together in fund administration for six years for an American company based in Ireland. And then one day, one of Des's friends reached out to both of them. We started working on a collaboration tool called Task Messenger, which is essentially a shared to-do list for teams. And on the back of that, a friend of Des's asked, would we pitch building their fund admin company a new Rex platform? Which we did, we built a prototype. Um, we knew the problem really well. And from there, it kind of snowballed through to sign our first client, getting them on board as well. And then this year we went live with Delight and we kind of, and of all our clients to be big multinational companies. But then the company grew very quickly and all of a sudden it grew beyond Ireland. Within the funds industry, even though some of our initial clients were based out of Ireland, we kind of naturally propagated across their international offices and got out as far as Singapore and LA and Canada on the back of our implementations in Ireland. And that's then given us local reference clients in those countries. And it's really how we've grown internationally is through that organic uh, outreach. And that's now enabled us to set up our US office, um, which I've moved over to lead. It was a decision that was made that one of the three founders had to move to New York and Alan volunteered to do it even though him and his family would have to sacrifice leaving their new home in Ireland. Small bit of sacrifice, so we, we just finished renovating our house at home, which was an old tree-bed cottage, and moved in for a week and got to enjoy that, and then came to the States. But of course, on the upside, it's, it's a fantastic opportunity for the company and for me personally and, and the family to live in America and broaden horizons and experience the culture here. Um, and everyone's been so welcoming and provided so much opportunity for us. It's, it's hard to have any regrets at this point, and we look, we look forward to making the most of it. And the pressure is on Alan to bring business to the company by being in New York full time. So our goal for the US and I mean, our mission in general is, is to get to 60 clients. So we're currently at 19. Um, to reach that target, I'm going to need to sign 25 clients in the next two years. So pretty much one client a month. And so if you can help provide any introductions, Alan has specific types of companies that he's targeting. Our target market are fund administrators, fund managers and audit firms. 
So we have clients like MUFG who are fund administrator. We have Deloitte, uh, top four audit firm. So it's those type of companies that we're looking to speak to and any of those that are connecting systems together in terms of data or doing reconciliations. And as always, in the Digital Irish community, our aim is to break down the barriers to communication so that we can help startups grow. So right now we're a team at 13 servicing 19 clients from Sydney and Australia all the way across to LA and the West Coast, the US. And we're making a push now to to grow our revenue to 5 million in annual recurring revenue in the next 24 months, which involves me signing a client a month in the US and, and signing a, a bunch more over in Europe. So any introductions in terms of prospective leads, we'd be more than happy to talk to them. And if anyone knows any good salespeople as well here in New York, I would appreciate that introduction. And yeah, anything, anything you can do to help would be much appreciated. To learn more about the company, you can visit fundrex.com. That's F-U-N-D-R-E-C-S dot com. Or you can email Alan directly to alan at fundrex.com. Now stay with us because we have one more startup to introduce you to on this episode. And this is a super interesting story about the banking system in Kenya, which was totally eye-opening for me. And I found some relevance to it because when I first moved to America in 2015, I remember one of the first apps that people told me to download was Venmo. And they told me to do this so that I could send money to my friends easily. And in that same year of 2015, Revolut, which is a UK company, was launched to offer the same type of service in the UK and Ireland. But what was surprising to me from today's interview was that in Kenya, people have been sending money through their phones since 2007. And it's all done through something called M-Pesa. M-Pesa was launched by the mobile networks in Kenya, and it lets people send money via text message. And all of the texts are secured by a PIN. So they've used the most simple form of mobile communication to overhaul the banking system. And here's Tiernan Kennedy to explain a little bit about why M-Pesa makes Kenya such a unique market for fintech startups. 95% of Kenyans use this system, and it's extremely seamless. You didn't even need an app. It was just supported by the phone network. So you type in star 100 hash, who you want to pay, here's the phone number, what's the amount, what's the PIN number, and send it off. And what, what made it really successful uh, in the absence of banks, because only four in 10 Kenyans have bank accounts, is that the phone network set up agents, 100,000 agents all over the country. So it really built trust in the system. I could walk up with 2,000 shillings, Kenyan shillings, and put it onto my phone on my digital wallet, and I could also get it back at any point. Um, really like a runaway success. There's been lots of use cases, like for example, um, traveling with lots of money in your pocket was quite dangerous. You know, you're going from a city back to a, a village with, um, you know, you've sold livestock or you've sold um, feed and you actually have like, you know, the equivalent to say $1,000 in your pocket is very dangerous. And now what they do is they'll just text it home. There's no need to tra transfer money, um, just text it back. And it's revolutionized everything. So you'll see it started off at one phone for village for, per village and now it's built up to, you know, 95% of all households using the system. Tiernan got introduced to what was happening in Kenya by his friend, Barry O'Mahony, who was working for a digital payments company in Kenya called Tola, where they offer micro-loans through mobile phones. It was, it was the kind of thing where we'd done a company together before. Um, we were always hashing around ideas. Like I was working in a lot of technology companies. I had done a couple of small startups in the US um, and was always looking to build stuff. Um, and Barry was in a market where he was running a company where he's seeing you know, 10x growth in two years. And there were still huge opportunities in the Kenyan market because only four out of 10 Kenyans have a bank account. So many of them don't have access to credit. You know, in Kenya alone, there's $19 billion worth of credit that's unmet. Um, that's from World Bank figures. So like every year, if there were proper lending services, there would be another $19 billion being lent out. And with numbers like that, Tiernan and Barry got thinking. But before they made a commitment to start a new business, they wanted to make sure that people would be interested in the new lending service. We're big fans of, of being lean and like that lean startup it, like mentality is a really good way to do it, which means, you know, only build what you need to build when you know you should build it. Um, so what we did was we got a Squarespace, um, we set up for a 24 hour trial, we put some ads on Google, um, and then, you know, 24 hours later, 800 signatures. And we know that, okay, if, if we build it, there's serious appetite here. For two months, Every waking minute was spent building this microfinance platform where users could apply and receive small loans. And then, you know, it's kind of turn on the floodgates and, and get it into the market. 
so Tiernan and Brian's startup, which they called Umba, was now live. And something that hasn't been mentioned yet is that they decided to self-fund the business. They were launching a lending business where they lent credit to their customers and chose to fund it themselves. And when Tiernan talked about turning on the floodgates, business came pouring in as soon as they launched. But then we just had this huge organic traffic coming in. So people we'd never advertised to, um, that we just would see coming in, spread through WhatsApp, through forums, through our Google Play reviews. And that was, that was crazy to see. It's, it's good and bad. It's like when you're lending your own money, it's daunting because it's coming out of your pockets and getting a thousand new customers, you know, is, it can be tricky um, when you're, when you're um, in the lending business. So like there are pretty scary times. We're just trying to keep up with it. But in general, it was a good problem to have. They wanted to hold out for as long as possible until they could prove that this was a business with genuine demand. You know, after a couple of months, we, we finally, we realized we had the traction. We were keeping track of everything. We had a data warehouse. They could, you could see that this is working. Customers are resonating. Organic traffic is massive. Like there's, there's a real business here. And then we went to raise money. Um, and that was great because it is a hard, a hard business to pitch to a VC. It's way out of their comfort zone. They don't even know what M-Pesa is. They don't know what East Africa is. They, they've never been there. It's, it's totally left field. So you've got to make a very strong pitch as to why this business works. But we did get the business funded um, and that was a year ago. And it's, it's, been, it's been fantastic ever since because we've been able to like really grow this into a proper company. And during those first few months of lending money, Tiernan and Barry realized what the credit from their micro loans was actually paying for. When we were building this business, um, we started off doing micro loans, you know, on average $10 in size. And a customer climbs up a credit ladder and gets larger loans up to $150. But what we found was from, from uh, seeing all our customers' transactions is that customers are actually spending a lot of money paying for electricity bills, um, paying for e-commerce online. And that's where a lot of their payments are going. So our insight here was, can we bring the merchant and the customer closer together? Um, merchants are struggling to scale e-commerce in emerging markets because there's no access to credit. So there's, there's no credit card network. So like when Amazon launched 25 years ago, they had Amex and they had Visa networks. So when you were like, am I gonna use Amazon? The only question is, do I trust them? And like, can they get it delivered to my house? Whereas in emerging markets, you're like, can I trust this website? But also, can I get credit to pay for this purchase? I can't get liquidity to pay for it. So what Umba has gone and done is like, we have this massive customer base and now we're adding the other side of the market, which is integrate directly with Kenya Power, who collect like 900 million in, in electricity payments every year, connect to Nairobi Water, um, all the airtime providers, all the internet providers. Um, uh, do, we're doing partnerships in the online pharmacy that will do pharmaceuticals, uh, prescription drugs to your home. But their biggest problem is people not checking out, people buying one week of a prescription instead of four. And then we are sitting at their point of sale system when you're checking out online going, do you want to fund this over four weeks or do you want to pay for it upfront? And that's really powerful because a customer is getting the benefit of the purchase they're making right there. Um, and they're spreading that payment over four weeks. At this point, Umba have given 100,000 loans and almost a million dollars. And 227,000 people have applied for their service. They're continuing to grow by expanding into Uganda and are now looking to raise some capital for that growth. Um, and my ask for the Digital Irish community is, um, we did a pre-seed round last year. Uh, we're now raising a seed round. We've had some really strong growth. And we want to build on that and, and become a very large company. And we're looking for any investors that are interested or any introductions to investors um, that might be interested in funding our company. Um, and that'd be massively appreciated. To get in touch with Tiernan, you can email him at tiernan at umba.com. So if you're still with us, I want to say thank you so much for listening to the first episode of the Digital Irish Podcast. You can catch more episodes with Irish innovators around the world by subscribing to our podcast. And if you'd like to be featured on the show or even have suggestions of guests that you would like to hear, please email us. You can reach us at hello at digitalirish.com and you can find more information on digitalirish.com or talk to us on social media with the hashtag digitalirish. I want to say thank you to Emily Rostek who produced this episode. I'm Patrick McAndrew and you've been listening to the Digital Irish Podcast.